This is a podcast from SBH Radio. I'm Loretta Lopez and this is True Crime SG. I'm joined today by Mr. Sujin Thomas, an ex-reporter for The Straits Times. Sujin, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Sujin, where in The Straits Times did you begin your career as a reporter? Uh, what kind of beats did you cover at first? I started off as a music reporter. So in, in at least the first three to four years of my career there, mm-hmm. I was interviewing musicians, rock stars, uh, going to concerts on a very reg- regular basis, uh, reviewing gigs, working on trend stories on what was new, what was hip in the music scene, both Singapore and internationally. And it was only about f- maybe four years later that I did a switch to join the Crime and Courts team at the Straits Times. It was a big uh, jolt to my system, having to rewire my brain and to think differently, to dress differently, to even report very, very differently from writing about features and light-hearted articles to suddenly very serious stories where um, I was writing about real people, real cases, and, um, and my stories could affect people in real ways, which I had to be very conscious of each time. Uh, how many years did you spend uh, as a reporter at the crime desk? I mean, what was that like? There's not that much crime that happens in Singapore. It's low crime, but uh, the crime team essentially covers all forms of bad news. It extends to things like um, car accidents, white-collar crime, disasters, things like gas leaks, you know, explosions, you know, fires, and as well as the proceedings at the courts, both right. state and the high courts, yeah. You said earlier that how you know Singapore were blessed to have low crime. This little red dot has had its fair share of pretty gruesome and bizarre uh, That is crimes, true, yeah. Right? So let's turn our attention now to the case of the Tawari Sydney double murders. These are the facts of the case. Singaporean Ram Puneet Tawari was studying at the University of New South Wales with fellow Singaporeans Tay Chow Liang and Tony Tan Po Chuan. All three were housemates. On the 15th of September 2003, between the hours of 11am and 2pm, both his fellow housemates were murdered. Tiwari says he was asleep when Chao Liang was murdered, but he did awake to the sound of what he said sounded like something falling. The TV was blaring at the time, so he didn't suspect anything and went back to sleep. Tiwari woke up again when he heard another commotion and was out of bed this time. This was when Tony was being killed. Tiwari says he was too afraid to leave his room and barricaded the door. He did eventually leave his room. That's when he discovered his murdered housemates and quickly called the police. He was later arrested and charged in May of 2004 and he was jailed. At the time, he was 25 years old. His first trial took place after two years of remand in May and June of 2006. Six years later and two trials, he was later acquitted in 2012. Crown prosecutors did not appeal against the acquittal. Now, all I have to research this case was through newspaper articles, uh, mostly from the Straits Times. Uh, and his book, though, I, I did pick up a copy of his book. Tiwari had a book published in 2014, uh, entitled yep. 99 Months, The Case of the Sydney Double Murders. Uh, you, Sujin, on the other hand, have a pretty much first-hand account of the court proceedings when yep. you're tasked to rep- uh, report on the second trial. And you flew out to Sydney, right? 
Uh, that's right. I was there for five and a half weeks. Five and a half weeks. Okay. Yeah. So set this up for us. You're in Sydney. Uh, you have your notes, obviously, in the case and, and some research. Um, and of course, I'm presuming your editor's brief on what to, to report back and all that. So what was your first plan of action? When I first landed, I went to the newsstand and I bought um, every copy of the local English newspapers that I could find. And uh, I was just trying to see if there's any reports about the trial that was due to start on a Monday. So I had flown in on a Saturday night and uh, the trial was about to, was to start two days later on Monday. And strangely enough, there was nothing in any of the local newspapers about the trial. There was nothing to like set the stage that this is going to happen the following week. Well, why, why do you suppose there was such a lack of uh, or lukewarm interest? I'm not sure, but at the time I was thinking maybe it was because it involved uh, foreigners, maybe because alleged perpetrator and the victims were Singaporeans and not Australians. That was one thing that came to mind. The second thing that that I thought about was maybe because it was a retrial. Right, right. And there was probably more hype about it during the first trial, but since this was that same case uh, brought before the courts, again, maybe this time, maybe the media thought there was too much uh, fatigue in terms of raking up the old story all over again. I'm not sure. Mm. But uh, these were the two things that crossed my mind. So you've got the newspapers and you're getting ready to go and cover the story. But did you have an intention to, to speak to anyone first? Like to go to the, the house where the, the murder took place? Or were you just going to do that, attend the trial first? Um, I, I had a, a day spare, a day to play with. So Sunday was uh, the only day off that I had before the court proceedings began on a Monday. So... I thought I would take that day to um, to orientate myself with with uh, where I was, where the Supreme Court was, uh, fastest way to get there, of course, and also to try and figure out who might have uh, flown in for the trial. So I had a contact who confirmed that uh, Ram Tiwari's parents were in town, um, and relatives of uh, Tan Po Chuan as well. Right. Uh, his parents, essentially. Right. Yeah. Okay, so did you ever make it to the house where the murders occurred? Uh, yes, so at the end of the first week of the trial, the jury was asked to board a bus and they were taken to the house where they were gi- they were given a walkthrough of the apartment to so they could visually see as oh, wow. well um, where the bodies were found. I left the court in a taxi just before the jury boarded the bus. So I got there a bit earlier mm. and I saw the jury walk into the, into the apartment and eventually leave. And uh, when they left, I went up to the apartment and knocked and I rang the doorbell. Mm. And there were a few. St- there were students that lived in the apartment. They were right. Asian students. Right. And, um, and did they, they know asked, that, Did they know what they happened? Had, they had no clue. Oh. And uh, I was at the front door and uh, I peeked inside. I, I, I was just asking them um, how, how how long they lived them for, and it seemed that they. I lived there for just a few months. Um, the house looked recently renovated, mm. fresh coat of paint. The furniture looked brand new. Mm. It looked like it didn't look. It certainly didn't look like any murder or anything bad had happened in there. And I asked the the guy who came to the door if mm. he knew about anything about the apartment or in the area because I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the one to break the news to him that he was yep. now living in a murder house. So. Right. I couldn't be so specific, but I asked him if he knew anything bad that might have happened in the area. And uh, he's, he looked very puzzled and he said, no, I've not heard of anything. Mm. And I uh, asked him how long he had been in, in Australia for and he said about two years. So I said, oh, okay, okay. So 
he got a bit suspicious and he said he needed to go and he slammed the door in my face. <laughs> but by that time, I'd already wow. made a mental note of what the, what the apartment looked like and how many people were staying there at the time. So I did walk around the neighborhood. I mean, I took the opportunity since I was there to walk around the neighborhood, speak to people who lived around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying to look for slightly uh, longer term residents mm. to see if they had been around uh, during the time of the murders in 2003 to see if they could have, if they remembered anything. But unfortunately, I only ended up speaking to uh, foreign students. So the, the area seemed to be popular with uh, students from the University of New South Wales. Mm. And it comes as no surprise because that street is literally a five to ten minutes walk right. from the back entrance of the university. A few things stood out uh, on this case. And I think the, the main thing, uh, the most disturbing thing, was the shoddy police work on the part of the New South Wales police force. I mean, for instance, early in the trial, um, it was revealed that the police had lost two videotapes of Tiwari being interviewed by detectives um, on the day of the murder. I mean, how does yeah. that happen? Well, it was 2003, and uh, from the looks of the video recording, which was, which was also shown in court, it, it looked grainy, so I don't mm. think it was very modern, digital-type recording that we have today. Right. Uh, resolution was not great. Uh, it almost looked like it was recorded on VHS, mm. or maybe the mini-DV, which might have been uh, used at the time. Mm-hmm. So the quality of the video was not perfect. And um, from what I understand, from what was raised in court as well, uh, the tapes went... Not, I mean, it, it was not sure whether the tapes went missing it per se, but they might have been mistaken for something else and overdubbed, which means re- used to record something right. else, which is how those, that, uh, those two tapes went missing. But, I mean, not all was lost. There were still some audio tapes, video tapes. Uh, that you, yes, there that were. you guys, uh, that the court, you know, the jury was able to watch, right? Yes, but the defense did uh, stress that um, some crucial evidence uh, was on those two tapes that uh, were lost. So none of us would be able to be able to say how critical it was or uh, whether it might have uh, swayed the jury to have decided otherwise at both trials. So did you, you did say in your article that... Um, when you watch the tapes, that Tawari looked visibly and audibly distraught during the interviews. I, I did try to put myself in his shoes uh, if something like this were to happen to me. So as I was watching that video, which was shown in court, the initial interview with the police, right after um, he called the cops and he was called into the police station for questioning, I put myself in his shoes where I tried to see how I would have reacted differently. And I, I don't know. I think from my point of view, he was behaving like how anyone would. Mm-hmm. If something like that were to happen to them, um, some people might argue that oh, he was putting up an act. If he was, um, I would say it was a very, very convincing act because uh, he did not behave like someone who had just committed the crime. Uh, that this was the first police interview that he did. He seemed like he genuinely wanted to help the police to find whoever did this to Tian Tan. During the interview, he kept saying, uh, "I I will do whatever it takes to help you." He kept repeating that, I'll do whatever it takes. Now, the other thing that um, stood out for me was the white sedan, all right? So to give a bit of a background to our listeners, now on the day of the murders, Tony went to class that day. Chow Liang did not. And Tony was seen by his classmates between 12.15 and 12.30. 
p.m. He attended a, l- a lecture. Now, Tony and Chao Liang are, you know, as I said earlier, they're good friends. They always attended classes together, but not that day, however. And after lecture, they had um, an ethics meeting planned at 2 o'clock, but Tony cancelled it with the rest of the, the few of the classmates. And he was last seen by two or three of his classmates boarding a white sedan, and in the sedan were three other Asians. Um, and, you know, 15 minutes later, he was dead. Did that come up in the second trial? It did. So this is probably um, the biggest point of contention mm. that, that, that came up during the second trial, uh, the question of the white sedan. There were different accounts of whether it was a white sedan or some, I think there was one account that said it was a blue sedan. Right. Um, but the big question, and this mm. is something I realized for myself when I went to the area and I did the walk, to where the car supposedly picked up Tony. Tony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did that full walk. And I even walked to the lecture theater where he, where uh, Tay was supposed to have attended his class that day, but he skipped the lecture, yeah. right? So I, I wanted to know how long it would have taken each of them, you know, to get back from class. Mm. So I did a full walk. And the walk from where the car supposedly picked up Tony uh, to where the house was, is was easily not more than five to seven minutes yeah. on foot, which would make no sense for anyone to jump into a car, mm. squash in with three other people in a car and ride for a minute or two mm. and yeah. get off at your house. I mean, it just does not make sense. Why would you do that unless you're under some form of coercion? Mm. Someone was asking you to get into the car. I don't know. That was the only reason I could think of, you know. I mean, some sometimes people do jump into people's cars for just a minute. Mm. You know, I, I wouldn't completely rule that out. But whatever the case, there was this account of the white sedan that picked up Tony that was never, ever uh, confirmed. Yeah. The, and, the and that, New South Wales police did not never, trace the car. They never tracked it. Exactly. You know, because there were so many eyewitnesses. The fact there was another eyewitness, a lady around the neighbourhood, close to the apartment, in fact, she reported to the police that a, but not a white sedan though, a silver sedan was speeding mm. away at top speed that yep. was so fast it was I mean it was so reckless the driving that it almost hit like a lamppost or something and this was just two kilometers away apparently from the the apartment where the murders mm. had occurred so I mean yeah. uh, what year is this they would have surely street cameras or CCTV cameras to aid in you know trying to track down this vehicle which I think is a rather in my opinion sounds like a really really important piece of evidence right this is by all means you should try and track this car down I mean it was raised in court Uh, the defence jumped on that the fact that the police did not try and track the car down what did the police say what was that um, reason? They didn't feel it was important. If if, <laughs> if I if I remember cor- correctly, that was wow. the reply. They didn't think it was an important part of the investigations. And by the time they did realize that it could play an important mm-hmm. part, it was too late. The, the other thing that stood out for me was the lack of DNA evidence linking Tiwari to the crime. Uh, for instance, none of Chao blood was found on Tiwari, right? And the only blood that was found on Tiwari was specks of Tony's blood, of which... The defense team argued that Tony um, had coughed up blood on Tiwari as uh, Tiwari was bending over to check for a pulse, right? Yeah, there was a forensics expert, it was, it was mm-hmm. a blood expert yep. who testified that it was very likely what he called um, ex- expiration blood. Yes. So it is uh, blood that um, a person might cough up after the person is already dead. It might just be a reflex. Correct, yeah. 
And you watched the video of the crime scene? I did, I did. Could so you, they screened... Could you describe the scene for us? Sure. They screened the video of the police walkthrough to the court, to the jury and to everyone in there. It, it was a handheld camera view. I don't think they were using cameras of the standards that we have today. It certainly wasn't in 4K. And so it was a bit grainy. It started with the camera walking in through the back door of the house. And then what you see was, um, was the living room. And for a split second, it just looked like nothing had happened there. And then the camera turned to the left and you could see uh, Tay's body slumped on the ground. And the camera went in for a close-up. You could see it, it was really gory. There was, there was a lot of blood everywhere. It just looked like a mess. And it also looked like someone had possibly tried to hide the body behind the couch. Because a few seconds after that, when the camera went around the couch and turned around, it looked like, again, like nothing had happened because the couch was obscuring his body. And then the camera walked on, um, whoever was holding onto the camera uh, walked on and then you could see uh, Tony's body slumped near the front door of the house. Mm. Again, that the vicinity around his body was a complete bloodbath. There was a big blood smear against the wall just next to where his body was. I don't think I want to go into too much graphic detail, mm-hmm. but... Um, but Tony took the uh, whole... Tony took the whole brunt of the attack, I must say. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. You, you, you could see from the amount of blood around him that he certainly uh, took more of a... A beating. Yeah. Beating, yeah. Now, at the first trial, one of the Crown's expert witnesses, uh, Dr. Johan Duflo... Now, he wrote in his autopsy report that it was possible for Tony to cough up blood. Remember, I was saying that the, the tiny specks of blood yeah. and that you were saying that it's uh, expiration... Yeah. Expiration blood, yeah. Yeah. So that was in his report. But when Duflo appeared at the trial, he did a complete 180 and said that after some discussions with his colleagues and other doctors, that his conclusion was incorrect. Mm. So basically, that was the first... Like, yeah, that was the first trial. Mm. And I mean, to me, I think that's... I mean, is that odd? that an expert witness would suddenly do a completely change his statement from being very yeah. confident that yes, that those were just that was Tony's blood and now it's not. During the second trial, they mentioned the expiration blood and they said it was, uh, was completely plausible that that could have happened. So there, there, there was no backtracking during the second trial. So going back to you know what you saw the scene, right? As you mentioned, it was a real bloodbath and of course the forensics did the tests at the conducted department trying to find evidence of whether the blood was washed away, whether there were clothes being laundered, you know, because whoever did that killing, and if it was say to worry, there would be a lot of blood on him and on definitely yeah, his clothes. There would definitely be a lot of back spatter. But according to the police forensic department, the bathrooms, the sinks, the floors, all dry. So there, there, was, there was no sign of, of any sort of washing or cleaning or trying to, in yeah, the house. Or trying to remove evidence of mm. any sort, right? And the timeline does not hold up because, you see, if Tony was killed... Sometime after 2, he <coughs> left university about 2, got home about 2.10. And that triple zero call to, to the police yep. um, that Tawari made was at about 2.20 in the afternoon, 10 minutes after yep. you know, Tony was killed. And he yep. was on that call with the operator the entire time, correct? Because he, right, yeah. he was terrified. He didn't want to come out of his room, remember? So it was impossible for Tawari to be washing himself or the murder weapons or anything, right? Did you listen to that triple zero emergency call that uh, Tamari made to the police? Yes, they, they, did, they did play that in court as well. That call, uh, you could hear how frantic he was. Mm. Um, he clearly didn't, he sounded like he didn't know 
what was going on around him. Right. Um, all he kept saying was he had barricaded himself in, in his bedroom. Uh, he heard some beatings outside. His housemate was dead. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of blood and he was asking the police to come now, come quickly. Mm-hmm. And the operator said, um, stay on the line with me. He, so he stayed on the line with the operator until um, I think the operator told him that the ambulance was outside or nearby. Mm-hmm. And then he hung up and he went out to the front of the house through the back door. And he saw two ambulances about 20 meters away from, from their house. Yeah, but he sounded genuinely frantic and... He sounded like how someone would if you're not sure what just happened and uh, something as serious and gory as that uh, was just lying outside your bedroom, you know. So as you covered the proceedings of the second trial, who, who did you see in the courtroom? Uh, his parents were there every single day mm. along uh, with his brother, uh, Rohit. And um, his uncle was there as well. His uncle is a criminal defense lawyer in Singapore. Um, they were there practically every day. Tony's parents were there for at least the first few days, but I don't recall them being in court every single day of the trial. The Supreme Court in Sydney is not a very uh, big court. Mm. It is not as modern as our high courts in Singapore. Uh, It's actually really old. It's more of a heritage-type Supreme Court, so it's maybe over 100 years old. So the room itself is not big, so it could not accommodate a lot of people in the in the public gallery. So in the public gallery, it was essentially his uh, Tiwari's parents, myself. There were a couple other reporters who were reporting for newspapers in Singapore. And how did Tiwari look throughout? I was watching him closely. I wanted to see how he would react when certain bits of evidence was presented, like when the bat was shown. Yeah. or when the video was played, or when the audio recording of the triple zero call was played. I was closely watching him to see how he would react. I'm very sure he was aware that people were watching him. I'm very sure he was also trying to not give too much of his own emotion away. He was uh, surprisingly very deadpan mm. at that point in time. Mm. Maybe because he had lived through it once through one trial already, and right. a second trial was more like a, like a replay of sorts. Mm. Yeah. He, was, he was probably exhausted, I would imagine. Probably, yeah. Alright, so five and a half weeks later, the jury has now reached a verdict. Well, what um, was quite interesting on the, on the day the verdict uh, was out was the jury deliberated for quite a long time. They mm. went in to deliberate maybe at about 9.45, 10 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. and they only came back close to 5 p.m., maybe maybe a bit later than that as well. Mm. So it was a waiting game for everyone. Tiwari's lawyers were waiting. I was waiting with them. I was having a chat with both the prosecutor and the defense, right. um, just on their thoughts, um, what they would do next, whichever way the verdict went. Tried to also get some thoughts and emotions from, from his family. Mm. His family largely remained very uh, tight-lipped. They were not willing to speak to me very, very often. Very rarely did they say anything. Um, and if they did, it was largely through either his brother Rohit or his uncle Ramesh Tiwari. So when we got back, when we were finally called in at about something like 5.30 or maybe 5 o'clock in the evening and the verdict was out, um, I think we, we all thought that maybe he would be acquitted. 
Right. I'm quite sure that that a lot of us had that sort of. So that was the general um, yeah, sense in the whole room. Yeah, at least from everyone else aside from the jury, prosecution was of course very confident that they were going to win. The defense was quite confident that they were going to win, but from the public gallery, the people that I spoke with and the other people who were reporting there as well, we thought that there was a, actually a really high chance that he might be acquitted. And uh, when the verdict was out, we found out again that he was found guilty. But at least the, his sentence was reduced. Now, yes, that's right. Maximum yeah. forty-eight years instead of life, which was his yeah. first sentencing, right? That's um, right. What so what was the reaction in the courtroom? It was silent. Um, oh, there was. Wow. N- I looked around. Um, Tiwari's parents had their heads down. Tiwari didn't flinch. He didn't show any sharp change in facial expressions or anything. He just maintained com- his composure. Mm. I mean, I put myself in his shoes and very possibly he might have prepared himself for the worst already. But throughout the courtroom, it, it, it was still quite quiet. It's certainly not something like how you would see in a, in a Hollywood show where people start to pound the tables or bang their feet and all that. Right. It wasn't like that at all. It was just very swift, very silent. Were you surprised at the reaction? I was surprised at how five and a half weeks had culminated to this point. Mm. I was expecting a little bit more of a a reaction from, I, I guess, from Tiwari himself, mm. from his family at least. Uh, I, I mean, the family did look visibly disappointed. Yeah. Aside from that, there was you didn't get that sort of dramatic impression that here is a man going away for 48 years. Yeah. On a personal note, do you yourself still think about this case? I mean, do you have any theories of your own on who the killers might be? I've never stopped thinking about it. It's one of those cases which completely have has mesmerized me and more so because I sat in through the trial and I saw the evidence firsthand. I saw the accused. I spoke to the families. It's quite close to, to my heart. But having said that, I don't have much to offer in terms of offering answers aside from the answers that have already been put forth. Uh, I think the white car could have offered many more clues as to what might have happened. There was also a few fingerprints found in the house that were never traced to anyone who had been to the house at least over the past two years or so. Mm -hmm. Individual prints that were found in the house that were never traced to anyone. So, and the fact that there was no sign of any forced entry, yeah. uh, that's another thing which I took into account as well. So it's the killer or killers mm. were clearly known to Tain Tan. Yeah. So these are the three points which I think constantly plays in my mind, you know, like who could it have been? So what's your personal takeaway from this whole case? The entire case against uh, Ram Tiwari was largely based on circumstantial evidence. Uh, the fact that he was home at the time the fact that he had droplets of Tan's blood on him, mm-hmm. the fact that he had bought a softball bat uh, just days before the incident, mm. um, it raises questions as to how a person uh, can be blamed for something as serious as a double murder twice and convicted twice mm. based on uh, circumstantial evidence where the facts are not so clear-cut. There were so many elements that introduced um, reasonable doubt. I often think about who is the real killer or killers and how have they been dealing with themselves? Uh, where are they now? You know, have they ever confessed uh, what they did to anyone? 
Yeah, I mean, these are some of the questions that that come come to mind. But again, this the biggest takeaway here was the fact that the prosecution uh, was largely um, leaning on circumstantial evidence, which is quite un- unlike a lot of murder uh, cases we find in Singapore, where the evidence is is um, overwhelming, overwhelming, and uh, it's more clear cut. Uh, so the case still remains open. Yep. Right to this day, do you think this will ever be solved? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope um, the authorities will keep will keep looking to find the real killer or killers behind this, not just for the sake of justice, but also for closure for the families of Tan and Te. And that was Mr. Sujin Thomas, an ex-reporter for the Straits Times, talking with us on the Sydney double murder case. Thank you, Sujin, for being with us today. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. True Crime SG is a production of SBH Radio. It's hosted by Loretta Lopez from Money FM 89.3. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcast, and streaming on Google Home.